Hey, 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 closet busters and bold move makers. It is time once again for Life Uncloset. So I want you to gather around because it is time once again to kick down those closet doors of your life. We're here to escape our BS, explore our fears, and elevate our self-expression. I'm your host, Rick Clemens. I'm the bold move expert and that coming out guy who's going to take you to the party, the pulpit, the wake, and back to the party of living your life uncloset. So come on along with me and grab hold of yourself and get ready to step out, step up, and step into facing your fears, making your bold moves, and living life without apologies. Now let's get to the show. Hey, 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 everyone. It is Pride season. It's our time to celebrate being us. Not that we shouldn't be doing that every day of the year, but Pride season seems to bring out the best, the worst, and even the craziest on the planet. It's about being LGBTQ. And I'm very... Very glad to be having this conversation during Pride Month with someone who is part of not only our community, but of another community that tends to get slammed and bashed and everything else. Yes, I'm talking about our Black queer brothers and sisters, which it makes it a hard road to toe, so to speak. But why not celebrate everything? And let's talk about what's really going on in our world right now. It is a little bit crazy. And I think right now, all of us could use a little bit of a pump up and go and hold together, band together, be who we are, do not hide in our closets for any reason. My guest is an author. He is also the Dean of Academic Affairs for a very well-known university, Wellesley. And um, I'm really excited to have Dr. Michael P. Jeffries here to talk about not only his journey, who he is, and his book, Black and Queer on Campus and to help us celebrate pride. So, Michael, welcome to the podcast, man. Glad to have you here. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So, um, black and queer. Wow. Couldn't be more of a one-two punch these days, right, man? It seems just a little bit crazy out there for all of us. Yeah, and I, I just to be clear, I, I come to this work as an ally. Um, I do not I consider myself part of the LGBTQ community, but of course, um, I have many folk in my life who are yep. uh, loved ones, um, and they were in part a uh, pretty severe motivating factor for for writing the book, mm-hmm. and also my students on campus. Um, those yes. were another group of people who you know have been very close to my heart for a long time. And though I started writing the book years ago, really in the thick of the Trump era, mm-hmm. uh, so many of the issues pertaining to bigotry directed against LGBTQ folk, uh, racism. Uh, all of those things, unfortunately, have stayed relevant. Uh, so mm-hmm. the interviews were a few years ago, but the issues in the book are just as present as ever. Well, and you're still part of the family. I'm just going to put it out there, man. You're still part Thank of the family. You. I consider allies to be part of the family. And and without our allies, it becomes a very, very hard fight. I mean, we need our allies standing beside us, you know, and I love that as a, a Black man, you are willing to also talk about this and be part of it because you're in a marginalized community yourself. So let's just be real about it. The the stuff that's going down for Black people in our world, especially in our country these days, it, it's, uh, it's an abomination. I'm sorry. It's just ridiculous. So as a ally, what is something that you've consistently seen happen that you're like, and I know there's probably many things. So I know this is a big open question, right? Yeah. But, you know, let's put it into present tense. Like right now, what do you feel like is one of the biggest things that's happening from your perspective on the campus of Wellesley that you're seeing like, wow, it's just gotten exacerbated since the lovely Trump era? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the first thing to say is we're still in a period of recovery 
We're still in a period of recovery when it comes to the impacts of the pandemic, which we know disproportionately affected folk who were already marginalized and vulnerable. Uh, we're still in a period of recovery from the policies and the rhetoric of the Trump administration, which, yep. you know, quite frankly, were designed to strike fear into the hearts and lives of so many people, again, who were already vulnerable. So just emerging out of that as a community, frankly, has been a bit of a challenge. And then yep. when you add that to the persistence of some of the problems that existed before, uh, whether it's violence directed toward the trans community, uh, state violence, police violence included in that equation. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly when you talk about state violence and police violence, uh, we can't ignore the fact that anti-Black violence at the hands of the police has continued essentially unabated despite yep. the gains of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, so we're seeing the impact of all of that on our students. And I think the other piece of this is that um, our students have been living with this crisis when it comes to the trauma and the violence, really for the better part of five or six years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's difficult, I think, to it becomes increasingly difficult to continue to imagine a future beyond this moment. Right. When you're seeing things like book bans mm -hmm. and you're seeing things um, like the attacks on gender affirming care for young people, uh, these were issues that really were not on the political radar 10 years ago, but it feels like we're backsliding. Yes. And I think so many of our young folk are, so many of our young folk are facing the reality that the progress we've seen, especially among LGBTQ rights issues, that was never guaranteed. We have to continue to fight for those gains uh, mm -hmm. because they are in jeopardy. They are in jeopardy, in huge jeopardy. And, and even in the black community, there's huge things happening that are in jeopardy, you know, and I, anybody, hopefully anybody who's listening, they're, they're hopefully shaking their heads. Yes, I understand this. I hope maybe there's some that's like, okay, let me understand this a little bit better. One of the things that I maintain and, uh, you know, anybody who listens to my podcast is going to go, yeah, we've heard you say this, Rick, but I'm going to keep saying it until I don't have to say it anymore. I can walk down the street as a hetero, you know, quote, heterosexual looking man, right? I'm a white, cisgendered, homosexual man. I can walk down the street and nobody's going to know anything different until I say, oh, by the way, I'm gay. Then the narrative changes because I'm just an average looking white guy, right? I can only relate to my black queer brothers and sisters to a degree because they got two strikes against them. One, the color of the skin, no matter the shades of that skin. And two... The moment that you say you're queer, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes back through generations about being black and queer. So it's one of those things that I agree 100%. I see us backsliding in a tremendous way. I came out of the closet late in life. I stayed in the closet because of some of what we experienced many years ago. And in this day and age, and I'm, I've been recording some Instagram videos about this, I'm like, if you don't realize that what we're doing right now, whether it be trans rights, whether it be LGBTQ overall rights, that if you continue to do this and you continue not to let children understand the differences in gender equality, all of this sort of stuff, we will continue to have people come out of the closet at 30, 35, 40, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70 years old. And then you go, that's horrible that they did this. They ruined their family. Well, no, guess who ruined that? The people who said you can't be who you are. And so that's why I feel like, you know, your kind of books continue to push the narrative of this has got to stop. We've got to open our minds. 
So what was the inciting moment or moments that brought you to this place, Michael, where you're like, I need to get this book out of my system and into practice? I appreciate the question. Um, I talked a little bit about what I think the students on campus are going through, both at my college and at colleges and universities around the country. And I think the other major factor was the Black Lives Matter movement, which really was founded by folk who identify as queer Black women. Mm. Right. If you look at Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, um, those folk, uh, they were doing work in all kinds of spaces, uh, the queer, queer rights and advocacy space, as well as racial justice spaces before Black Lives Matter. And they founded Black Lives Matter very intentionally and explicitly with an intersectional framework, right, about what mm-hmm. liberation really looked like for queer Black folk. And as the movement gained popularity, I couldn't quite tell where queer issues were on the sort of consciousness of the broader American public when it came to Black Lives Matter. So I was really interested, did the students see it as mm-hmm. a Black liberation movement or as a queer Black liberation movement. Mm, and that was one of the one of the key motivating factors for me is, you know, I thought there would be nobody better to talk to about that slippage, right, between something that was founded by queer Black women, but the more popular it became, the more simplified it became to just a movement against police violence, a movement against incar- mass incarceration mm-hmm. directed toward Black folk. And some of the other things that the founders were talking about uh, seemed to sort of fall by the wayside or get deprioritized. So I wanted to hear from the students about how they related to the defining social movement of their life. Well, it is a defining social movement. And, you know, I, I won't even I shouldn't say it. no, I am going to say it. I won't even have a discussion anymore with people who are like, you know, Black Lives Matter, White Lives Matter. No, you don't get to play that card. You do not get to play that card at all. Because unless you are sitting in a marginalized community and you have been had your rights removed or potential of having your rights removed or been any of that, you don't get to have that kind of voice. Now, that doesn't mean I stand on my soapbox and say, screw you. That's even though I want to at times. Um, But what I find important about what you just said is this liberation piece. If anybody else who doesn't agree with what's going on or doesn't see it, like, why is this such a big deal? If you had your rights taken away because of the color of your skin, because of your heterosexuality, because of something happening, what would you be doing? It's a very simple question. What would you be doing? Would you be sitting on the sidelines? Now, I realize there is a surge of suddenly like Christian persecution starting to show up Mm -hmm. around all this, right? Which to me is a completely different conversation. No, it's not Christian persecution. It's you're trying to impose your rights and your beliefs onto people and make them everybody's. I don't think anybody in America per se is saying everybody should be black. I don't think anybody in America in the LGBTQ community should say everybody should be LGBTQ. There will be extremes in all Groups. I'm not going to say that. that I'm not going to deny that. But I think the beauty of what you're bringing forth is this is a conversation that needs to continue to happen, and it needs to continue to happen until it's not necessary for it to happen ever again. I don't know that either one of us will see that in our lifetimes, but that would be the beauty. I mean, I've always maintained, Michael, that the day I never have to coach anybody out of the closet in midlife again will be a beautiful day of my business goes under. I would love to see my business go out of business because of that. So what has been some of the um, toughest parts about this book 
being out for you? Has there been backlash? Has there been, you don't get it? Has there been, you're a heterosexual black guy? What do you, you know, I'm just curious. Have you had anything? You know, honestly, I think the readers who have come to the book have really been hungering for something like this for a long time, because especially young black folk, college age, slightly uh, older, maybe, uh, they really do see themselves in the stories of these people. I might have interviewed 65 college students, uh, 40 who went to HBCUs, historically black Mm -hmm. college universities, another 25 who went to predominantly white institutions. So the diversity and the richness of the diversity of the queer black experience really shines through in the book. And so many of the things they went through, um, whether it was the struggle within their family, uh, the struggle they faced when they got to their college campus, uh, issues with dating, that negotiation, as you sort of described, about coming out of the closet and and really trying to figure out what that means for them, right? If that wasn't the model they had growing up, Mm -hmm. if there wasn't a bright bright red line between in and out, what are those kinds of in-between spaces that they were able to make lives for themselves within. Um, I I think those are the kinds of questions and experiences that they've been dying to have someone reflect back to them. And I think that's what the book does is it allows folk who read it to, you know, to really relate to it, right? Whether you're an ally or someone who's been through it yourself, you can see pieces of your own family history, pieces of your own church, your religious community's history pieces of your own college or university, you can find pieces that reflect things that you've actually been through. And that I think has been a validating experience for the readers. I agree. And I think the thing that you brought up about, you know, book bands and everything is like, if this stuff isn't put into the public space where people can discern for themselves and understand and learn, learn being the key thing, then we are creating a society of disbelief. There's a there's a space where it didn't exist, so it doesn't exist. And it doesn't matter. You can never. In fact, it was interesting. My husband and I were just on vacation and we were sitting at the pool and this this lady joined us in the hot tub and, you know, a little bit of chit chat. And then suddenly she said, oh, she asked where we were from. And we said California. And she said, oh, I'm from Florida. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm not going to react, you know, because I don't want to make an assumption. And she goes, "Uh, that's okay. I saw you guys kind of, she goes, I was raised on the West Coast. And she went into a whole diatribe of like how much she's not enjoying being there, but it was a thing that had to happen. And then she said, in fact, my daughter, who is, I think she's either a junior or senior in high school, had to take an American studies AP test, you know, to pass the course. And one of the questions basically said, something along the lines of these individuals who were indentured servants who were brought to this country, not of their own accord to serve the colonizers or whatever, something along those lines did this. Is this a true or false statement? And and it's like, they're not even going to say the word. They're not even going to say it. Right. Right. And so it's, we see this happening, you know, now, I have a perspective, which I think might be somewhat similar to where you, you've you gone in your books and stuff. They're going to try to find the the community where they think they can get away with this. Yes. And then figure out how to repeat the pattern. Yes. And I think that's what we see happening right now on both fronts of black and queer. They're yep. testing the water to see where they can get away with it. 
You know, they're starting with the whole drag thing, which is just such a ridiculous nonsense at this point. But I think it's where you have the power and where you bringing forth this sort of stuff, because this isn't the only book you've written. I mean, this is you've got a a whole bunch of books that address these controversial sort of things and looking behind things and inequality and all this sort of stuff. So as a professor and, and, you know, a dean, what do you feel like the next bastion is that we've got to really address other than what's present right now? I mean, <laughs> that's enough to address right now. But what do yeah. you think the next thing you see coming forth is coming down towards us? I'm so glad you brought this up. And I want to return to the point you made about why they're doing it, why they're testing it on certain communities. You know, James Baldwin, in a letter to Angela Davis while she was incarcerated, said, uh, I know if they come for you in the night, they're coming for me in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right. They mm-hmm. come for you in the night. They're coming for me. in the morning. We have to understand that's the level of linked fate we're talking about. Yes. When it comes to marginalized, vulnerable folk, they're going to start with the weakest among us. Yes. Right. And gradually expand. Yes. The abuse, the erasure, et cetera. So we can't afford to think that this is only going to happen to those who are least able to defend themselves because it's going to be for all of us. That's the first thing. So I'm really glad you raised that. Second point you raised about the book ban. Number one, yes, they're trying to erase history and prop up a whitewashed version of the country. But the governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, in a commencement speech to Morehouse College this year, said something really important about this. He said, I'm paraphrasing. He said, the reason they're doing it isn't just that they want to rewrite the history. They want to hide your own history and your own power from you. Mm -hmm. You made the history. Yes. Right. You changed the world. And if they can erase or try to erase the fact that you are responsible for those changes, right, they can start to make you think you're powerless. That's the key. Right. To build in a concept of self that says, why bother to speak up? I'll never make a difference. Right. Right. And the more we allow them to vandalize history, the closer they get to an acceptance, a false acceptance Mm -hmm. of like disempowerment. Right. Right. So that's really what's at stake here. It's not just about changing the story. Mm -hmm. It's about changing our own concept of our own power. Yes. Right, the power we have to change the world. So I so I think when you talk about the urgency of what's going on, it's not just a battle that a few like pointy headed historians like me get upset about correcting the record. Right. It's really about are we going to allow our young folk to believe that they don't have the power to change anything? Right. Right. Yep. That's what this is about. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So the stakes really couldn't be higher. It's not just about a few books here and a few books there and the wording on an AP. It's like what they're really trying to do is keep us under their boot and yep. make us feel like we can't make a difference. Yep. I agree hundred percent. And if, and I mean, are we really surprised? I mean, let's go down, let's go back to MLK days and, you know, the Selma to Montgomery and, you know, the March on Washington and then Stonewall riot. Every time something uprising like that has happened, it's because people have taken a stand. Yes. You know, now it could be argued that then that's why the KKK took their stands. And then now we starting to see all this again, like they're taking a stand, like we're not going to be hit. But to me, there's a complete difference. When we're taking the stand, it is because we're saying this is morally not correct, nor 
is it historically correct? You cannot erase what is the truth. The other side of the fence is we're just going to be hateful. We're just going to, you know, and, and there's a lot of stuff. I mean, there's so much stuff going in there. In fact, one of the crazy ideas I had years ago was to actually do kind of a TEDx talk around the similarity of the KKK and the LGBTQ rights movements, because there's similarities. We try to be who we want to be. The differences is where I was going to go in the talk is the LGBTQ people, we're not out there to hurt anybody. We're not out there to diminish anybody. We're actually out there to raise all boats and say, we're just who we are. And it's a beautiful thing. Whereas the KKK and all these right wing and extremists, they're out to hurt. They're out to erase. And I love that you said what you just said, because if we do not allow it to happen, which literally is more than do not allow. Like if we do not find back at some point, Selma, the March on Washington, women's rights, mm-hmm. all of that could be non-existent. Yeah. And look, they've been unapologetic about their goals, right? Yes. Look at what's happened to Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. This was something that 10 years ago was regarded as settled law. Yep. It was a non-issue, supposedly, right? I mean, the legal community, mm-hmm. or even some of the justices appointed by Trump said as much during yep. their confirmation hearings. Roe versus Wade is settled law. Yep. Right? And now look at it. Yep. Yep. Hanging by a thread, if you want to call it that, it's essentially been overturned. And it's... we've got abortion bans at six weeks and so on and so forth. And states all over the country. So again, we can't afford to to underestimate the challenge in front of us, the urgency of the moment, nor can we afford to underestimate our own power in this fight. Because as you said, right, some of these white supremacist groups, not only are their tactics and aims different, but their starting position was they were starting from a position of power. And despite the disadvantage, right, of folks like those at the forefront of the women's rights movement, those are the forefront of the LGBTQ rights movement, those are the forefront of the Black Liberation Movement, immigrant activist act organizations who were starting from a position of diminished rights, right? The power of collective action, a belief in something better than what we have to have now, that has been enough to bring changes. And we can do it again, but we can't yep. afford to to leave it to other folk, especially well, not no, right now. And we can't we can't afford to sit on the sidelines. You know, I've had so many conversations recently with people within my own community and and other people within the the black communities and Hispanic communities. And I've literally had people say, I don't really think it's that bad. I don't really. And I'm like, I, I almost want to slap them and go, if you don't think it's that bad, shame on you for whatever happens, because it is there. It is so there. I mean, you know, we, we can go use... I remember people saying, oh, The Handmaid's Tale, it's such a, it's just a, you know, it's just a show. It's just a book that could never, here we are, folks, here we are, you know, and the thing that I think people do is they're handing over their power by thinking those things. You know, I've had some friends in in Florida say, oh, well, you know, our little area, you know, St. Pete's and certain areas, yeah, you know, it's, it's very LGBTQ. I'm like, well, maybe right now. Maybe right now, but I remember when South Beach in Miami was like very LGBTQ, still kind of is, but it's not near what it used to be. Wilton Manors is right now, but, you know, it just you I don't know how you can sit there, whether you're black or queer or both and go, it's not that bad. 
It's yeah. just not that bad. We are just, and I'm not trying to put fear out there per se, but that's what they're doing. Yeah, that's what they're doing. Fear the queers, fear the blacks. They're the they're the ones who are like out of control. I don't really think so. I don't I I don't remember the last time a queer person or a black person went into Target and tore down a display because they didn't like it. So what keeps inspiring you, man? Yeah, I was going to say, look at Charlottesville, right? I mean, when you look mm -hmm. at what happened in Charlottesville, right, yep. where uh, it was a white supremacist terrorist act. Mm -hmm. And when you go back and watch the footage, and of course, folk died during that attack. When you go back and watch the footage, they were screaming both anti-black and brown slurs and anti-gay slurs. Yep. Right. So we we can't afford to think, well, it's just one community or another community. Mm -hmm. Right. This is an attack that's wide ranging and intentional. And they're really serious about it. The, the thing that the thing that came to me in talking with the college students in my book was I think it takes time for people to build up the courage to step in the way you're yes. talking about. And if you are someone who maybe feels a little bit overwhelmed by everything you're seeing in the news right now, or doesn't have the experience or the, you know, uh, the, the practice of doing this kind of work. I think what my students tried, what the students in the book showed me is that the first step in a lot of this stuff is finding community, mm -hmm. being able to connect with folk who make mm -hmm. you feel comfortable, validated, uh, who reflect you, who lift you up, if you don't know what the first step is toward jumping into the fight, I think that's really the place to start is find a group of folk who are doing the work, who are going to mm -hmm. welcome you in and let you be yourself yep. and go from there. And then once you have that sense of solidarity, the world really opens up for you. Well, also, yeah. also to your point, you don't have to do it the way everybody else is doing it. Find the way you can best contribute. You know, I remember when my husband and I stood on a, on a street corner during the whole marriage equality stuff years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was like, OK, I'm going to do this. But then as people would drive by and heckle and, and some of them, I didn't really care. They were like old white people. Like, I don't really care. But then when kind of a younger, big macho guy drove by, I'm like, OK, I could feel a little intimidated by that. Who knows what that person could do, right? But I, I found, OK, I found the solidarity because it wasn't just me and my husband. There was right. a ton of us standing there right and even to this day and, and you know does it happen a lot no but i get hate mail all the time because of this podcast i don't take it worth a grain of salt unless somebody physically has like threatened me you know there that which only has happened a couple of times but i'm finding my way to get to do this in a way i can do it doesn't mean i'm not going to stand out on the street corners but there are many ways to find the solidarity and to contribute and to get, let your voice be heard. And it doesn't mean you have to go out and do something crazy, tremendous March. You sure don't have to go do it on your own. And I think that's what makes some people a little bit nervous is like, well, if I don't do it this way. And I, I actually had a, I witnessed this firsthand not long ago at an event. And somebody said to a young person, well, if you don't get out there on the streets and do this, then you're not really part of the queer community. And I wanted to just slap that person upside the yeah. head. Yeah. Because that you don't have that right. It would be like me saying, well, as a black man, if you're not going to go out there and fight for it, I'm not going to fight for you. Yeah. It's, it's a shitty way to respond to people. 
Yeah. But. And I think, you know, some of the students wrestled with that too. And that is if, if there's a particular model of what queer resistance looks like on their campus mm -hmm. or queer advocacy looks like on their campus mm -hmm. and they don't fit into it, right? It, it's it can be really challenging for them when someone says, well, you're not really down. Like, wh why yeah, can't exactly. you go with us? And it's like, really, there are a lot of reasons for that, right? Sometimes, um, you know, at, within queer spaces, there are issues of racism that prevent the kind of solidarity we're talking about. Sometimes the kind of public advocacy work has really different costs for students, depending on where their families are and the folks who support mm -hmm. them are, right? So if I'm in a situation where, you know, if a student is in a situation where they can't post an Instagram picture, right, of them and their significant other, because if someone in their family sees it, they'll mm -hmm. cut off their tuition money and they're yep. getting called cowards by the folk in the queer community because they're not doing it. There's a disconnect there. Like there's a, there's a Huge. lack of awareness about what the costs are and how the costs can be different and the different forms of courage that are necessary right, for folk to live the way they want to and speak out the way they want to. And I think that the more we talk about this diversity of experiences, yes, the more we're going to allow people to feel like they can, as you said, get in where they fit in and not have to go with a one-size-all-fits model of what active activism or advocacy looks like. Well, we, my husband and I just recently were in Palm Springs on vacation, and one of our friends asked us when we got back, oh, did you did you go to the gay bars? I'm like, no. Well, you didn't go. You didn't go patronize the gay businesses. I said we stayed at a gay resort, but mm. I don't feel like I have to patronize a gay establishment to go. Uh, you know, we're just not the let's go hang out in the gay bar kind of guys. We went yeah. to a gay wine bar one evening, but nobody was there, so we had one drink and we left. But I don't. I don't feel like I have to do that to be part of the queer community. And I hate when people do that. And I'm sure you've in some ways, your own way experienced that. I used to work with people through Thurgood Marshall Foundation. And we had these conversations all the time. There, there's this, there's this equality equity thing that happens in the black communities too. Oh, you're, oh, you think you're that because you're a professor and you know, oh, okay, brother, you're not really a brother. You know, it's like, this is the ridiculous piece of what we do as humans, just because somebody doesn't have the experience or doesn't fit into the experience you think they should fit into doesn't mean they're not as quote black or queer or whatever it may be. You know, yeah. I have guys that I work with that come out of the closet, which is predominantly what I coach is guys coming out of the closet late in life. Mm -hmm. And I have literally had guys come to me and say, well, I was at a bar and this guy told me, Oh, well, if, if you're, you need to do this, if you're going to be part of our community, or you need to do this, or you need to wear this, or you need to act like this. I'm like, no, you, here's the beauty of coming out. First of all, you get to be you, whatever that looks like. Yes, I realize people can be really mean and stuff like that. But if you go and start to step into the box of being who somebody else says you have to be to be queer, you're right back in the closet. Hate to tell you, but that's just the way it is. So I think these are valuable conversations on both sides of the coin as marginalized individuals in the Black community, the queer communities, to realize how you do Black, how you do queer is how you do it for you plain and simple. Absolutely. What inspires you right now the most? Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that we're seeing is um, we are seeing, I think for my generation, the range of stories 
in black queer life, whether we're talking about film and television, I mean, shows like, you know, think about film like Moonlight, for example, uh, what that did and continues to do for so many uh, young queer black folk. So I think we're we're at a place where the visibility in the entertainment industry, the advocacy of folks like uh, Janelle Monet, uh, Billy Porter, folk like that, that's at an all time high. And that's really inspiring. Um, I also think we're at a place both in the LGBTQ space and in the Black liberation space where people are asking courageous questions about the prison system and what policing looks like and should be in this in this country. Um, because police violence is such a reality for queer mm -hmm. Black folk, for Black folk and queer folk, we're seeing some overlap and some intersections Yes. in that conversation that's really exciting to me and the fact of the matter is just on its face when you talk about the sheer number of incarcerated people in this country that we put in cages mm -hmm. on its face that is so deeply morally wrong yep. and it doesn't have to be this way mm -mm. It, you can have a developed economy and not have a mass incarceration system you can have a developed economy and not have a crazed gun culture right, that then becomes justification for militarizing the police, right? But one of the things we hear is that, well, if the bad guys, quote unquote, have guns, then we have to arm the police to the teeth, right? That's the kind of logic of yep. this story, right? That's why we continue to suffer through mass shootings and continue to suffer through uh, domestic violence and, and guns in the home and all that sort of thing. Um, it doesn't have to be this way. And I, and I think that queer Black folk people working in all of those spaces are really trying to reimagine mm. policing and incarceration in ways that are long overdue and so, so desperately needed. Anybody can look at these issues, right, and say, it shouldn't be this way. We can't have this kind of violent gun violence in this country. No. Well, we we've lost our moral, moral compass. I mean, it's just the moral compass is, is yeah. lost. That's simply it, you know, and we were, again, back to our vacation, we were in Sedona, Arizona, and we got in and went to a restaurant and sat down and, you know, I'm hungry because we've been driving and everything. And suddenly my husband's texting me. I'm like, I'm, I almost said I'm sitting right here. And then I looked at the text. He goes, <laughs> the guy sitting next to us, he has a gun. He has a gun on his hip. And I'm like, welcome to Arizona. And the thing is, is I looked at the guy and he was with his family and, you know, young kids and everything. I'm like, I just wanted to, you know, ask the question, why? Yeah. Why do you need this? Are you that afraid of something? Which is really yeah. it. They're afraid yep. of something, you know, That's right. something that most of them can't even begin to define. Yes. They like to say, oh, it's the black people or it's the queers or somebody's right. going to take my guns away. Well, guess what? Maybe if your gun was gone. Things would be a whole lot different world, too. Yeah. You know, but um, well, I don't know that we've solved any of the problems, but we had a really good conversation about. I mean, it, I think it's about having conversations about the reality of situations right now. When there's book bans, when there's travel advisories going out from, you know, many organizations about going to certain states. That's a sad state of our world. It's a real I mean, it's, I mean, I know the world at large. This has happened. But to see that in a very short time period that this has become like daily life in america yes it's really sad 
you know, and I know I put my foot down there, sir. I will, I will not go to Florida. I, you could not, there's no reason I would go to Florida. And if it meant I lost a job or I lost something, I wouldn't go. That's just the way it is folks. And good on you if that's where you want to be, but I will not put myself in those spaces, you know, yeah. because it just doesn't feel safe. Yeah. And I think just to pick up on one of the other things we've talked about is there are folk who are who are trapped is not quite the right word, but trapped in those situations, right? Trapped in Tennessee, trapped mm -hmm. in Florida, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I think for those of us who who want to intervene in some way, who want to show allyship, support, solidarity, um, uh, there are so many organizations already on the ground in those places doing that work that that's where I would advise all of us to start, not sort of parachuting in, right, and saying. Right. In, starting our own thing, yep. but looking, right, where are the uh, community support centers, systems, yep. voting, right, voting rights advocacy groups, reproductive rights advocacy groups, yep. uh, where are the places like that in cities like whether it's St. Pete or Miami, and how can I add to what they're already mm -hmm. doing? We have yep. to have a kind of inside out model rather than a yes. savior model, right, where we're going to yep. parachute in. Yep. And, and and save the world that way. Trust yep. in the work of the folk who are on the ground there, and I think we'll all be we'll all be better off. But it's going to take some time and some commitment, and that's our responsibility. Well, and it's also going to take some belief. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's a little bit of I don't know, but I don't know if it's going to do any good. You can't. We cannot. We no longer can live in. I don't know if my voice is going to do any good. I don't know if my money is going to do any good. I don't know if my part. No, this is not. This is boots on those. This is boots on the ground time. And whether it's having conversations like this on a podcast, or as you said, I mean, I get hit up all the time for like, you know, political support. I'm like, no, I'm going, I'm going to the small guys in these places. Mm -hmm. Yes. I want to support political stuff, but I'm looking at, as you just said, like, where are the centers who need support? Where are the places that need, it? I remember I literally was in Austin, Texas yep. the week that Roe v. Wade got turned over. And as I left my hotel to go to the airport, I literally drove by the Planned Parenthood location, which I didn't even know was there. I, I don't know Austin that well, but I literally drove by a Planned Parenthood location with the fences already up around it completely. Yeah. And in my heart just sank. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. My, I have a young daughter who's travel has to travel there for work. And I'm concerned, but yeah. this is part of what she's got to do for her livelihood. But I'm like, be careful, be aware and go in and do what you got to do and, and get out as quickly as you can. And I hate to say that about a fellow American state, but it's too extreme at this point. And I think yeah. it's time for us to realize the extremities is where we need to do the work and not be afraid to show up and stand up in whatever way works for us. That doesn't yep. mean, as you said, parachuting in, but there's lots of ways to create a parachute. And I think that's the, one of the key messages here. So uh, yep. before we wrap up any new books on the way, I know you, you know, you have the one black queer and on campus, but what's next, anything new? No, I'm going to, I'm just going to stick with this one for a while. Let this one breathe for a while. And I, you know, I, I try to write some things in other spaces too, but yeah. uh, just really spreading the word about this one, because the conversations I had with the students, I really want to give more chance, more people a chance to hear what these young people have to say. Awesome. 
Very cool. Well, Michael, thank you for being the ally and the advocate that you are in our community and for your own community as well. And having these voices and sharing your insights and and doing what you do, because, you know, not all of us are going to write books. I mean, trust me, I, I've written a couple of books and it's like it's not the easiest endeavor in the world to do. But um, but I appreciate you appreciate your time. And if anybody is listening who would like a copy of Michael's book, please email me at rick at rickclemens.com. And I will send you a copy of his book. I've only got one I'm going to buy and send, but I would love to put that in your hands if this is something that's really super compelling to you to want to read. So um, thanks for being part of my community, Michael, and doing the work that you're doing, man. Thanks so much. Appreciate you as well. Hey, 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 Life Uncloseted family. Another episode of Life Uncloseted has come to an end, and it is time for all of us to sashay away and go face our fears, make those bold moves, and stand up to living our life without apology. But before you do, I've got a favor to ask of you. Would you hop over to iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or wherever it is that you're listening to this and just give us a little bit of love if you like what we're doing here at Life Uncloseted. Here's what it does. It helps other people find the show. It helps other people get to know what we're all about. And we just might help change life. In fact, if you really want to change a life, we'd love it if you just ask a friend to take a listen and see what they think. So that's it. Love you all deeply. I'm Rick Clemens, the host of Life Uncloseted. And never stop stepping out, stepping up, and stepping in to living your life uncloseted.